I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, and this is On Becoming. I'm hoping that you're enjoying listening to the podcast. I certainly am enjoying making it. If you're finding the podcast helpful in your own journey of becoming, please consider following or subscribing to it. If you'd like to support us, please do so at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast or paypal at onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. One more thing. Perhaps you've already discovered that there is a video version of On Becoming now on YouTube. In case you'd like to listen and watch, that's the place to go. We're now in the middle of this three-part series on Nietzsche's prayers and tears. If you haven't listened to the first episode, you might want to listen to that, since it sets the stage for this episode and the next. We've been following Nietzsche's journey from the German pietism of his youth to what I have come to call his Dionysian pietism. Nietzsche's goal is to move from the first to the second. However, there are at least two complications here. The first is that his Dionysian pietism is perilously close to German pietism. My own interpretation is that the two are mainly distinguishable by way of their object, the God of Christianity versus Dionysus. The second is that while Nietzsche clearly wants to move from one to the other, it's a lot less clear that he actually succeeds in doing that. But to continue where we were, let's go back to the last paragraph from the previous episode and take it from there. Just how far, though, does Nietzsche get in his Versuchung, particularly in terms of becoming a godless anti-metaphysician? Heidegger has famously questioned whether Nietzsche is truly an anti-metaphysician, accusing him of elevating will to power, becoming, life and being in the broadest sense, to metaphysical principles. But my charge here is that Nietzsche is not truly godless. For Nietzsche, life is the unbekannte, the unknown one, who replaces God. Of course, even this move of replacing God with life proves difficult for Nietzsche. So one can level at least three charges against Nietzsche. One, that he's not left metaphysics behind. Two, that his move from the god of Christianity to this unbekannte, this unknown one known as life, means that he has not left religion behind. And three, his attempt to replace God with life is itself only partially successful. We'll take up the second and third of these charges. They're different, of course, but if Nietzsche is guilty of either, then he's not truly godless. And as we shall see, Nietzsche still prays. Assuming Zarathustra is one of the masks that Nietzsche wears, not exactly Nietzsche per se, but a Nietzsche, or a perspective on Nietzsche, then Zarathustra provides us with some idea of Nietzsche's own experimentation, his versuchung, to leave the god of his youth behind and become a truly free spirit. The book Thus Spoke Zarathustra probably the best known of all of Nietzsche's works, opens with Zarathustra praying to the sun, after which he immediately encounters a saint who says, With singing, weeping, laughing, and humming, I praise the God who is my God. Zarathustra has nothing to say to the saint, but the saint's formula of singing, weeping, laughing, and humming will become his own, in praise to the God who is his God. But we'll turn to that shortly. In contrast to the saint, though, 
Zarathustra's message can be summed up as remain true to the earth, that's a quote from Nietzsche, rather than be swayed by otherworldly hopes and values. Just so you know, this aspect is utterly key to understanding Nietzsche's criticism of both Plato and Christianity. You might think, okay, so how can a pagan like Plato and Christians be, so to speak, on the same side? The simple answer for now is this. Both of them devalue the material world and elevate the other world. For Platonists, that other world is the world of the forms, like beauty and goodness. These essences exist in a heavenly realm. Similarly, Christianity, or at least certain versions of Christianity, place a strong emphasis on the life to come in heaven, or else the bad place. If you want a quick illustration of that, consider how evangelicals' notions like Armageddon and the rapture are about the end of this world. Some evangelicals can't wait for these things to happen. But back to Nietzsche. In Zarathustra, Dionysus is in fact replaced by life. Of course, Zarathustra realizes that in order for life to take the place of God, along with an accompanying revaluation of all values, one must undergo a series of metamorphoses of the spirit. That's Nietzsche's way of putting it. One must move from being the carrier of burdens, who is the camel, who can be said to represent the religious person, to the destroyer of values, which is the lion, to, and now I'm quoting from Nietzsche, the child, who is innocence and forgetfulness, a new beginning, a sport, a self-propelling wheel, a first motion, a sacred yes. As opposed to the morality of Christianity, which Nietzsche sees as reactionary and fueled by ressentiment, Nietzsche desperately seeks a new logic, one that's true to life. What Nietzsche wants is first to learn to think differently and second to feel differently. I've mentioned these points before. In order for Nietzsche to overcome his Christian roots, he first needs to think differently and then perhaps slowly over time come to feel differently. If you want a simple example of this kind of point, note that it took me quite a long time to figure out that I was queer. But then it takes time for such a realization to become something that I can feel comfortable with. But otherwise, I came to the point of seeing being queer as not some terrible thing, which of course was what I was taught to believe. But then I had to get to the point of being okay with that, not intellectually, but emotionally, deep in my being. For this and other reasons, starting over is easier prescribed than accomplished. That practical inability becomes evident in, for instance, the section of the tarantula, this is in the second part of Zarathustra, in which Zarathustra admits that he has been bitten by the desire for revenge that characterized Christianity. Now, in case you're wondering what that means, Nietzsche believes that what we now call the Judeo-Christian tradition is a reaction to the morality of the ancient aristocrats. Such people, according to Nietzsche, had no question that their values or their way of life were right. Nietzsche thinks that such a question never really occurred to them. 
If you want an example, you can check out Aristotle's Ethics. Aristotle has no problem defining morality in terms of aristocratic privilege. And indeed, he holds himself up as kind of the exemplar. He doesn't argue for that. He just says, yeah, this is who I am. Nietzsche contends, and is surely at least partially right about this, that the Israelites and then the Christians adopt values that are suitable for their lowly position in the Roman Empire. Thus, they value friendliness, the helping hand, and concern for the least in any given society. In Hebrew thought, the ones who particularly deserved attention were the widow, the stranger, and the orphan. That emphasis carries over in what Jesus says and becomes part of the Christian tradition. However, Nietzsche's problem is that he's not yet learned to think differently, even if that's what he still preaches. He's still beholden to these views that privilege the lowly. Zarathustra is forced to confront his inadequacies in a section called The Stillest Hour. There he is told voicelessly, O Zarathustra, your fruits are ripe, but you are not ripe for your fruits. At this, Zarathustra wept and trembled like a child, for he admits that he is still not a lion and so cannot become a child. This inability to believe and live out his own doctrines of not yet being ripe recurs not merely in Zarathustra, but in Nietzsche's later works as well. Nietzsche copes with this inability by emulating the saint, singing, weeping, laughing, and humming, in effect, praying. In the second dance song, this is in Zarathustra part three, Zarathustra attempts to dance with life, who says to him, You are not faithful enough to me. You do not love me nearly as much as you say. I know that you are thinking of leaving me soon. To leave life would be to take refuge in wisdom as a kind of defense against life, which Nietzsche sees both philosophy and religion as doing. As a result of life's charge of infidelity, Zarathustra sings the song of yes and amen, the subtitle of the seven seals, which has the repeated refrain, for I love you, O eternity. Clearly, this is not the song of Zarathustra the faithful, but of Zarathustra who longs for faithfulness, who sings a song of affirmation of faith, but still lacks faith. Like many hymns, this hymn is clearly a prayer, addressed to life. But what kind of prayer is this? One would suppose that this is not the prayer of which Nietzsche speaks when he says, you will never pray again, never adore again, never again rest in endless trust. You refuse to let yourself stop, to unharness your thoughts before any ultimate wisdom, goodness, or power. Nietzsche exhorts us not to pray in such a way that we trust in any wisdom, goodness, or power. In contrast, Nietzsche calls for, and I'm quoting here, faith in oneself. Yet even Nietzsche questions whether this project of renunciation of reliance on another is truly possible. For he asks, who will give you the strength to do so? No one has yet had the strength. Does Zarathustra slash Nietzsche really give up such prayer? I think he does not in at least two ways. 
On the one hand, his dance with life ends by him saying that now life was dearer to me than all my wisdom had ever been. So we have a transference of adoration and trust from the Christian God to life. Further, the important elements of Nietzsche's prayer of 1858, when he was 13, can be found in Nietzsche's later thought. First, there's an outpouring of the heart in the second dance song that sounds remarkably like pietistic devotion. Although Nietzsche remains inconstant, he at least wants to be faithful to life. Second, even though Nietzsche wants to give up prayer, the question, who will give you the strength to do so, implies that Nietzsche is not really capable of giving up on prayer and reliance on his own. But then, on whom or what is Nietzsche relying? Is it not life herself? Third, what Nietzsche had earlier said of the God of Christianity, I have firmly resolved within me to dedicate myself forever to his service, and then to the unknown one, the Unbekannte, I want to know you, even serve you, he now pledges that to life. Finally, Nietzsche's earlier affirmation of God's will, his holy will be done, all that he gives I will joyfully accept, now becomes the prayer of yes and amen. So while Nietzsche is no longer a pietist, he retains the basic framework of pietism. In one sense, he makes a tremendous leap forward. In another sense, he's still trapped in the logic of German pietism. Of course, Nietzsche tries to renounce any dependence upon ultimate wisdom or power. In terms of wisdom, Nietzsche wish, wishes to give up the attempt to provide anything like a final answer. This is one reason why Nietzsche says, I distrust all systematizers and stay out of their way. The will to system is a lack of integrity. But even if Nietzsche does leave wisdom and its systems behind, and I'm not sure that he really does, life certainly seems to be Nietzsche's ultimate power. So Nietzsche himself does precisely what he warns against. Although thus spoke Zarathustra, ends with Zarathustra proclaiming, the lion has come, my children are near, Zarathustra has become ripe, my hour has come. It is difficult to be convinced. Even if we were to accept that the lion has truly come, just how near are the children? We get a glimpse at Zarathustra's considering vulnerability in the sorcerer, who represents both Wagner and Nietzsche himself. The sorcerer prays to the Unbekannte, saying, You unknown god, and even you malicious unknown god. He asks, What do you want? And would you climb into my heart, climb into my most secret thoughts? And me, you want me, me, all of me? The pietistic overtones of this prayer are unmistakable, as are the similarities with Nietzsche's earlier poetry and prayers. The speaker is clearly torn. On the one hand, he proclaims, Away! He is gone! He himself has fled, my sole companion, my great enemy, my unknown, my hangman god. And yet he goes on to say, no, come back with all your torments. Oh, come back to the last of all solidarities. All the streams of my tears run their course to you. And the last flame of my heart 
it burns up to you. Oh, come back, my unknown God, my pain, my last happiness. Only if God departs can the one who prays become truly an individual, characterized by what Nietzsche calls faith in oneself. But then there is the desire for God's return. Although Zarathustra accused the sorcerer of dissembling, and the source admits that he has said these words to put Zarathustra to the test, there's an undeniable tension in these last two stanzas. One possible interpretation is that the sorcerer both demands that God leave and that God return precisely because each departure serves to make one harder. Yet I think there's something more here. The sorcerer admits that he is acting out and now I'm quoting from Nietzsche, the penitent of the spirit, and that, again quoting, it took a long time for Zarathustra to realize that it was an act. Why is Zarathustra so slow to see through the ruse? His explanation is that he must be without caution, so my fate will have it. But even as Zarathustra, as an overman figure, must throw caution to the winds, why does he so quickly take pity upon the sorcerer and reach out to comfort him? Clearly, the sorcerer touches Zarathustra's heart. And he touches Zarathustra's heart because Zarathustra sees himself in the sorcerer. The sorcerer's double gesture of desiring God to depart and yet return, of being free from God yet afraid of the abyss, closely mirrors Nietzsche's early path poetry. So Zarathustra Nietzsche has not simply left this ambiguity behind. In his later works, Nietzsche's continued faithfulness to his reworked pietism likewise proves problematic. That dissonance can be worked out in at least two respects. First, Nietzsche admits that he himself is guilty of decadence, the negation of life, Although he desperately attempts to combat decadence, he is well aware that he does not succeed. Second, Nietzsche depicts the evangel, as opposed to the crucified, as the free spirit he hopes to be. In comparison to Nietzsche, the evangel seems to achieve something to which Nietzsche can only aspire. Both of these aspects end up being ones that, for Nietzsche, result in prayers and tears. Despite the late appearance of the term decadence, decadence, in Nietzsche's corpus, it is as if he has finally discovered the perfect term to describe what he's been fighting all along. For the term, in effect, supplants and sublates, and atung, which is degeneration, resentment, resentment, and nihilismus, or nihilism. Nietzsche even goes so far to say, Nothing has preoccupied me more profoundly than the problem of decadence. And Nietzsche's interest in decadence is profoundly personal. While there are various ways to describe decadence, they all come down to the same thing. A devaluation of life, both practically and theoretically. Practically, Nietzsche says, to choose instinctively what is harmful to oneself. To be enticed by disinterested motives is virtually the formula for decadence. So one acts decadently by choosing against life. Theoretically, decadence is manifested by considering life to have no value. 
And here's what Nietzsche says. Instead of naively saying, I'm not worth anything anymore, the lie of morality says in the mouth of the decadent, nothing is worth anything. Life isn't worth anything. I always wanted to be saved from decadence. On Nietzsche's account, Socrates employs dialectic. Yet Nietzsche thinks that such a strategy is not only ineffective, but also self-deceptive. He says, and this is a longer quote, it is a self-deception on the part of philosophers and moralists to think that they can escape from decadence merely by making war against it. Escape is beyond their strength, for what they choose as the means as salvation is itself just another expression of decadence. They alter its expression. They don't do away with it itself. In contrast, Nietzsche tries a different sort of salvation. I'm using that word in air quotes. Admitting his own decadence, Nietzsche claims, I comprehended this. I resisted it. Strangely enough, though, Nietzsche goes on to say, the philosopher in me resisted. Yet how can Nietzsche really resist philosophically when Socrates was unable to do so? Clearly, the answer is not a different sort of dialectic. Instead, Nietzsche claims he follows an ascetic strategy of a special self-discipline, that's how he puts it, that includes self-overcoming and self-denial. Here we can ask, what self is it that Nietzsche wishes to overcome? And what self-overcoming would look like? The self that Nietzsche wishes to overcome is, as I've been arguing all along, that of the pious young Fritz. But does Nietzsche really overcome the self? We've already seen that Nietzsche remains remarkably true to his pietistic roots in important ways. True, he moves from his old faith in the God of Christianity to faith in life, resulting in both a desire to serve life and a willingness to say yes and amen to life rather than to God. But he has not left what Salome terms the mystical God ideal behind, and he seems quite unable to leave it behind. Moreover, even his desire to serve life is such that he turns out to be a decadent. He attempts to resist that decadence, but it's a resistance that seems, on Nietzsche's own account, to grow more and more futile the more he becomes convinced that the ideas of free will and human agency are merely fictions. Nietzsche realizes that he is not true to life, and he feels deep remorse for this infidelity. But there's a far greater problem that Nietzsche faces, not only does he wish to be free from the God of Christianity, he also wishes to be free from the very hope of redemption. He speaks of redemption from the Redeemer, erlösung dem erlöser, a salvation from the very desire for salvation. But can Nietzsche really make such a move? It would seem to be that to be saved from salvation or redeemed from redemption is once again to repeat the very logic from which he is trying to escape. Nietzsche does realize that one cannot escape decadence by merely making war against it, as is clear from the quote from Socrates. But how then can Nietzsche truly escape from escaping, overcome overcoming, redeem himself from redemption, or save himself from salvation? At this juncture, Nietzsche makes, not surprisingly, what is clearly a religious move, 
Those of you who've been listening to the podcast for a while probably aren't even slightly phased by the fact that he needs to make a religious move. Since religion is ultimately about what we most care about, then such moves, redefining what we most care about, are inherently religious. He claims that redemption from redemption can only be accomplished by faith. Now, that's probably something you weren't expecting. A faith that is, and he, I'm quoting him here, the highest of all faiths, one that he says he has baptized with the name of Dionysus. Only with this faith, a glad and trusting fatalism in the midst of the universe, can one become a free spirit. Of course, one can move to this faith only by becoming a child. Nietzsche has hopes for making this move, for he claims that he is at the same time a decadent and a beginning. But we are back to the same problem we saw in Zarathustra. Has Nietzsche truly become a child? Or does Nietzsche merely pray to become one? A prayer that in effect takes the form, life, make me a child, or even life, may I be born again. Well, Nietzsche can only hope and pray to become a child. He portrays the evangel, that's Jesus, in at least one crucial respect, as someone like the person he himself wishes to be. To be sure, Nietzsche tempers his praise of the evangel by calling him both a decadent and sickly. But Nietzsche also considers him to be truly childlike. Thus, the evangel is a free spirit, not merely an aspiring one like Nietzsche. He is already the perfect child, not one who has to undergo the difficult metamorphosis that lead to the child. Moreover, he exhibits childlike behavior precisely because to negate, I'm quoting here, to negate is the very thing that is impossible for him. He is instead only able to say yes. Thus the evangel does not operate according to the logic of ressentiment, a reactive logic. Nietzsche says he does not resist, he does not defend his right. Instead, the evangel simply acts. As Nietzsche puts it, the life of the Redeemer was nothing other than this practice. What the Evangel knew is that, and now I'm quoting from Nietzsche again, it's only in the practice of life that one feels divine, blessed, evangelical, at all times a child of God. Thus he resists any kind of word, formula, law, faith, dogma. I will be addressing Nietzsche's view of Jesus more deeply in another episode. For now, it's just important to see that Nietzsche has a largely positive conception of Jesus. Even though Nietzsche goes on to speak of we spirits who become free, the kind of freedom manifested by the evangel is something to which Nietzsche aspires but has not yet reached. While Nietzsche wishes to escape from the sort of reactive logic that characterizes ressentiment, his strident protests against Christianity and the crucified are actually indicators that he is not free. He hopes and prays to be free. He hopes and prays to be a true follower of Dionysus, but he knows he is unfaithful. So Nietzsche's last of nine autobiographies, Echo Homo, Behold the Man, is an attempt to reinterpret his life as a faithful follower of Dionysus. It is a confession of faith and a confession of unfaithfulness. When Nietzsche claims that Echo Homo is designed to tell us who I am, that claim is only partly right. 
for it is also designed to tell us whom Nietzsche wishes to be. I am a disciple of the philosopher Dionysus, writes Nietzsche. Such is both what Nietzsche is and also what he wants to be. In effect, Nietzsche says, I believe, help my unbelief. Nietzsche is rightly interpreted as giving us an aesthetic creation of himself in Ecke Homo, a self that is constructed by masks and the Rausch that takes one outside of oneself. But Ecke Homo also fits with Nietzsche's long history of prayer. Not the prayer of the weak, but the prayer of the strong, the ones who use songs and rituals to reinforce that strength. For example, one can only interpret the following as Nietzsche wanting and praying for this to be true. Really religious difficulties, for example, I don't know from experience. God, immortality of the soul, redemption, beyond, without exception, concepts to which I've never devoted any time or attention, not even as a child. Perhaps I've never been childlike enough for them. None of this really describes Nietzsche, neither the old Nietzsche nor the young. He has, in fact, been obsessed with these concepts, and he continues to be. His problem is that he's not childlike enough, though in exactly the opposite sense that he means here. Yet despite his attempt to be strong, Nietzsche is not so strong after all. He is all too well aware of his failings to live up to his own teachings. He tells us, When I have looked into my Zarathustra, I walk up and down in my room for half an hour, unable to master an unbearable fit of sobbing. Why does he sob? Right before this passage, he says the great writer, uh, Shakespeare is the comparison here, writes only from his own reality up to the point where afterward he cannot endure his work any longer. So it is in looking into himself that Nietzsche begins sobbing. And he goes on to describe himself as an abyss. Thus Nietzsche's tears are at once for the nothingness within him and the nothingness without. It is the abyss of which he had written in Du hast gerufen, Herr Gekoma, you have called, Lord, I come. The abyss that he had earlier says gives him ein Kauen. Yet his very sobbing is unbearable to him. For is the supposedly free spirit with Dionysian faith, enabling him to say yes and amen to all that comes, he ought not to be sobbing. Instead, he should have the resolution of the young Fritz to say, All life's gives I will joyfully accept. Happiness and unhappiness, poverty and wealth, and boldly look even death in the face. That would be the expression of childlike trust, after which Nietzsche so desperately seeks. What Nietzsche calls the free spirit par excellence is able to dance even beside abysses. But lacking that faith, Nietzsche prays to be rescued from himself, to become a child. His tears are for that inability to make it a reality. Nothing like Zarathustra has ever been written, felt, or suffered, writes Nietzsche. But when he goes on to say, thus suffers a god, a Dionysus, it is merely a hopeful and tearful prayer. That's all for today's episode. I hope you found thinking about Nietzsche helpful. As always, if you're finding the podcast to be beneficial in your own becoming, consider supporting it at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast or through the PayPal app or paypal.com. The username for both of those is our email address, 
onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. And do remember you can write to us at that same address. Or follow us or click subscribe. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, and I hope you'll join us for the next episode.